The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit www.gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. This is Zach Groff, and I'm going to be your host today as we go through one of our, probably our last one of the summer season, uh, one of our denominational debrief sessions. We're going to be looking at the Free Church of Scotland Continuing Synod with the Reverend Robert McCurley. Rob, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Zach. It's a pleasure to be with you. So the 2017 General Assembly of the Free Church of Scotland Continuing Synod met in May, May 22nd through May 25th in Edinburgh at Liberty Kirk in Scotland. So this is, uh, I think this is the only denominational debrief. Oh, no, the Bible Presbyterians met in Canada. So we did have another international uh, denominational debrief. But let me introduce to you uh, the Reverend McCurley. Rob earned his BDiv from GBTS in 1998 is when he walked. He had completed his coursework uh, in 97 and served in a church for a year. He he served congregations in both the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and the Free Church, um, the latter of which he will be discussing with us today. As I mentioned, he's maintained ministerial credentials in the Free Church since 02, and for the past 10 years, he has pastored the Greenville Presbyterian Church, which is virtually next door to the seminary here in Taylor's. This year, the General Assembly of his church elected him as moderator of their assembly, which makes him only the second U.S.-based moderator of a Scottish assembly. He's also working on a THM with us, if I'm not mistaken, focusing on the theology of Samuel Rutherford. And we had the privilege of taking a class together a couple of summers ago with Dr. McGraw. So very briefly, Robin, for the benefit of our listeners who are unfamiliar with the Free Church, can you give an overview of the denomination's history and theological distinctives? Yeah, so when you think of Scottish Presbyterianism, uh, the first date, major date, is 1560. That's where we mark uh, the beginning of the first Reformation in Scotland. And there's a lot that happened in, in subsequent centuries, but uh, for the most part, the next big big date on the on the calendar was May 1843. So May 1843, the Great Disruption took place, and uh, there were ten ten years of conflict prior to that. The influence of moderatism and uh, intrusion from the state in ecclesiastical affairs, patronage, uh, controversy, and so on, and that led to a crisis. And uh, in May 1843, the Free Church was was formed, initially called the Church of Scotland Free. And at that point, 500 ministers uh, left the C of S, Church of Scotland, formed uh, the Free Church, and tens upon tens upon tens of thousands of of people in Scotland uh, aligned with the the Free Church. So there were names that would be familiar to your your audience. The main leader was Thomas Chalmers, of course. But then um, several of the other Disruption Fathers would include people like William Cunningham, uh, James Bannerman, James Buchanan, uh, Hugh Martin, the Bonars, uh, James Begg, Rabbi Duncan, and so on. So most of, I guess all of the names I just mentioned still have books that are in print today. So. And studied at Greenville Seminary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, indeed, and studied here. So uh, it was very influential uh, over the, the end of the 19th century. 
1900, there was a crisis, as with uh, a number of churches in the world. There was a downgrade at the latter part of the 19th century, and there ended up being a division in 1900, uh, and there was a, a union between the United Presbyterian Church in Scotland and the Free Church majority. United Presbyterians were part of the secession tradition, and uh, going back to the 1730s. So there were a number of compromises that were taking place constitutionally in relationship to the confession, including the doctrine of atonement and uh, the establishment principle, which maybe I'll mention more later. But uh, at that point, there's kind of a shift. In 1900, the Free Church continued, those who stayed out of the Union, and it, it shifted really to a predominantly Highland church at that point. The, the bastion of Reformed Orthodoxy was in the Highlands. So in the 20th century, uh, the church continued to grow. Really, um, even into the 1990s, the Free Church of Scotland was the biggest evangelical denomination in Britain. But in the year 2000, uh, there was another division. So you're talking a century uh, later. And uh, it's a sad and sordid tale, but um, the result was uh, the formation of the Free Church of Scotland continuing, and uh, that's that's where I'm. Uh, that's the church I'm a minister in, and that you know, there's names that were were part of that as well that people would know, like Morris Roberts. I mean, he was uh, editor of the Banner of Truth magazine for 15 years and has a number of books that people read here in the U.S. He's he's in our church and was part of. Uh, the leadership in that that division. So that's in a nutshell uh, the history. A lot more could be said. In terms of distinctives, um, one would be uh, constitutional principles. So uh, the intricate relationship between the church and its creed or confession. And so, for example, you know our vows, which originate, I think, in 1707, and the formula, which has to be signed by ministers, elders, and deacons, uh, requires that the office bearer uh, take uh, the doctrines of the Westminster Standards as the uh, as a confession of their own personal faith, so without any mental reservations, scruples, or exceptions, and we promise to assert, defend, and maintain the doctrine, worship, and government uh, of our church. So there's a a long and uh, very uh, ingrained principle there in terms of the, the consciousness of, of the free church, its relationship to the confession. Uh, there would be other things. That that kind of rigorous commitment to Reformed Orthodoxy is wed with uh, experimental religion. So there's always been a very um, strong emphasis on vital, on vital godliness, you know, you might call Puritan piety, uh, it influences not only life, but, you know, the preaching from from the pulpit. So in the preaching, uh, despite our other distinctives, uh, it would be characterized as being much in the main things. So um, it would, you know, Christ and the Savior of Christ uh, crucified is preached. Um, experimental religion influences how the, 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 the hearts of the Lord's people are addressed and helping them in their, their uh, Christian pilgrimage. Uh, we would we would preach evangelistically from the pulpit, so kind of holding to a classical Reformed doctrine of the covenant in contrast to the neo-Calvinism of, of Kuiper and so on. We, we believe the church is a mixed body, and so we're, we preach evangelistically as well as, as, as other things, and that would include setting forth the marks of grace and so on. Um, I could speak more to that. Other principles would be 
probably the thing that would be visibly the most distinctive would be uh, our commitment to purity of worship and the application of the regulative principle of worship. So going from six, uh, from 1560 to the present, our worship has not changed. So we, we still sing um, uh, the 150 Psalms of David exclusively without musical uh, accompaniment. And um, uh, we don't have the observance of, of extra biblical holy days outside of the Sabbath. And, um, and there would be other uh, implications and applications that flow from that regular principle. Uh, another one that would be different from, let's say, American Presbyterian American Presbyterians would be the establishment principle, which I mentioned earlier. So along with the rest of the Reformed churches of Europe, you'll see this in the Dutch churches in the Belgic Confession, we, we hold to the original version of chapter 23 of the Westminster Confession. And so we believe that the state has an obligation to profess, protect, and promote the true religion. So... Uh, they they are a distinct sphere from the church, and the church and the magistrate are not to interfere in their respective roles, but both are to serve Christ under his kingship and uphold his law, the whole law, Ten Commandments, and um, both tables of the law, and uh, to, within their civil sphere, as I said, protect, promote, uh, and profess the true religion. So that has a variety of implications as well. That would be different. I could mention others, but you probably don't want me to uh, uh, go too long on one question. I think that gives us a pretty good overview of the free church. And uh, one question that comes to mind is, you know, if, if you had to really highlight the, the major difference between the free church of Scotland continuing and then the Reformed Presbyterian Church in North America, how, how really are you different? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the difficulty in answering this is I, I don't want to... Uh, I don't want to uh, accentuate, as it were, uh, differences or areas that I think they're perhaps um, could be strengthened. But uh, basically, the the differences. Well, there's a difference in terms of history. So the the Reformed Presbyterian Church is kind of a, a separate line within Scottish Presbyterian ecclesiastical history. You have kind of the main bulk of. Scottish Presbyterian history, Church of Scotland, and then the secession churches that came out and, you know, the Free Church and so on and so forth. And they, after the, the Glorious Revolution, um, there were groups that stayed out of that. In 1688. And, yeah. And so there were society people. And eventually in the 1700s, uh, I think they got a minister after 30, 40 years, and then they eventually formed a presbytery. And they've, you know, in Scotland, that, that uh, body was formed. And then the RPCNA is a is a um, a child, if you will, a, a daughter, yeah, of of that work. Um, so there's a difference there, but but more to your point, um, you're right. We would have we would both you know practice unaccompanied psalm singing. Um, I wouldn't say that the RPCNA as a whole holds to the establishment principle, mm. so that would not be a distinctive for them. There would be men within the church that would hold that, I'm sure. I know there would be. Um, uh, uh, their their view of constitutional principles would be different. So what's required in terms of subscription to the standards would be less rigorous than what I described earlier. They also have additional document called the testimony, which is basically held on par with the confession. And it's a, an interpretive instrument, if you will, of the confession. And there are points where the 
the testimony contradicts the confession, et cetera. So there's, there's that in terms of constitutional principles. Um, you know, I, I think this is fair. The, on the whole, they would be much broader, probably, um, in a variety of, of ways. But I, I mean, I have friends and family in the RPs and love them and have, you know, gone as a delegate to their synod and have a great deal of respect and appreciation for them. So. Now, that's helpful for getting us some grounding and, and, and moorings, for, especially for folks who aren't familiar at all with the, with the, the Scottish church, as you've described it. But um, that's, I'm really glad that you're here. I'm really glad you're in town. So we're able to sit down face to face and talk through at least uh, some, introduce the denomination to our listeners, but also talk through the General Assembly. So uh, one other demographic question, how many congregations are in the free church? And other than the United States and Scotland, where else can we find uh, gatherings of the continuing sin? Yeah, it's very good. Uh, I should know this off the top of my head. I don't. Um, Part of the problem is there's been some consolidation of some charges as well. So even if I knew my my uh, tally may be not accurate, I'd say there's there's thirty something congregations at present <clears throat> outside of the U.S. and Scotland. We have we have a work uh, in uh, Northern Ireland as well, which is which is recent, um, and a minister there. And then we have mission works, right? So we have we have. Um, we have a work in Spain and uh, in France. Maybe I'll come back to that later in Sri Lanka. And we've had one in uh, in Zambia, Africa for some time and so on. But the bulk of the church is obviously, you know, found in, in Scotland still. Mm-hmm. So who attends the General Assembly on an annual basis? Is it just ministers or do your other elders attend, like ruling elders? And if ruling elders do attend, what would the ratio be like? So, yes, it's it's both ministers and ruling elders, and uh, it's an equal representation. So you have uh, all the ministers are sent as commissioners from their presbyteries, and then the presbyteries also commission one ruling elder from every congregation. So you end up with basically a one-to-one, and uh, this is this is in fact a, a matter of principle. So the the presence and representation of the ruling elders is indispensable. It's required in terms of our legislation uh, to have them have them there. Uh, having one minister and one elder from every congregation uh, makes sure that the whole church is represented, but having only one elder also ensures that bigger congregations, so let's say you have a congregation with, you know, 10 elders, and then you have, you know, a congregation that's much smaller, maybe has, you know, a couple elders. You don't, they don't, you know, we wouldn't want for the larger congregations to have disproportionate influence in the assembly, you know, by stacking it, as it were, with a whole row of additional elders. So it it keeps uh, equity, I think, um, by having one minister and one elder so that all the churches basically have the same influence in terms of vote. Now you'll have the other elders, you know, can attend and, and often do attend, but there would only be, as far as commissioners, those permitted to vote, all the ministers and one elder from each congregation. Do uncommissioned elders, do they have uh, speaking privileges on the floor? 
they would be they could be given speaking privileges on the floor. So that, that's good. Um, how does the Free Church conduct General Assembly? You know, you've been involved in the OPC and the Free Church of Scotland. You came here to Greenville, where a lot of men are from the PCA. We've had ARP students. You know, I imagine you're familiar with how different assemblies and synods kind of run. Um, you know, for lack of a better way of putting it, what's the atmosphere like, and and what are the worship services like? Um, well, there would be a difference with regards to British parliamentary procedure in contrast to, for example, the Rob- Robert's Rules of Order, which is an American document, which most of the U.S. Uh, churches use. So there'd be those sorts of differences. I would say, on the whole, uh, the atmosphere is very reverent, and um, for lack of a better word, uh, some people might consider more formal than in uh, maybe other congregation or other other assemblies uh, in in the U.S. Um, so, in terms of uh, the worship services, I mean it's it's a sweet part of the assembly, right? You have all these you know godly men that are gathered together, and uh, they're really rich, to be honest. So we you know we have it's pretty much like our worship would be anywhere in our congregation. So you'll, you'll have a reading of the Old Testament chapter from the Old Testament chapter from New Testament, you know, singing of Psalms. And then we have, um, so there's worship before every sederant and uh, at the beginning of every sederant. But then in the mornings, um, we have an extended time of prayer. So the moderator will call on a minister, an elder, uh, basically from each presbytery, uh, not all at once, but divided up during the week. And so you'll have rounds of several men praying. So you have two men pray, and then a reading, two men pray, a psalm, two men pray, you know, another reading, et cetera, et cetera. And those are really, really rich times of, you know, the the officers of Christ Church, you know, calling upon the Lord and together with one heart, one one mind, one voice in prayer. So it's very sweet. You were elected moderator of the assembly this year. <clears throat> At least I'm assuming you were elected and not appointed or, or something else. What kinds of responsibilities then do you have as moderator? I know you presided or moderated the assembly itself during those few days, but is there any work ongoing over the course of this year? That's a good question. And things have, have changed. So in the past... Um, the moderator would have had real, an innumerable number of responsibilities throughout the year, speaking engagements, you know, preaching in various places throughout the church, uh, leading delegations to other portions of the church in the foreign field, and uh, a host of other things. It's really been significantly reduced. So the bulk of the responsibilities are moderating uh, the assembly, which happened in May, uh, and that would include, you know, preparing a moderatorial address, et cetera. And then um, we have two stated uh, commissions, uh, one in October, one in March. Ordinarily, the moderator would, would moderate at those. And at, at the beginning of the next assembly, the retiring moderator will lead the opening part and preach again to the assembly and uh, conduct the, the opening affairs prior to the election and, and uh, seating of the new moderator. So throughout the year, there's not much to do, especially in contrast to the past. 
Well, I'm sure your congregation is grateful for yeah, that. No <laughs> it means yeah. they have you around yeah, more. No one's more grateful than I am. <laughs> <laughs> so you preached this year um, on, or your moditorial address was on Matthew 22, 36 through 40, and the message was entitled, First Things First. Why did you choose that text? I mean, what was the main point, or what were your main points of your message that you delivered to uh, to the assembled body? Yeah, the text was was really um, verse thirty nine. This is the first and great commandment, which is I was focusing on. And there there are some parameters for a auditorial address. It's it's not kind of a, a free for all. So um, the goal of the auditorial address is to address the current state of our denomination, but also to bring. Um, material that would speak to the church at large and to society. So you, you kind of have those parameters in mind. What are the needs that that touch on those various categories, if you will? And so that that starts to limit your scope on the kinds of things you might you might address. Uh, I chose this particular text and topic, I think really because I think it addresses a blind spot generally. So the the theme, first things first, really is another way of saying first table first. So if you think of the Ten Commandments, you have the first table and the second table. The first table applies to our duties toward God, right? Commandments one to four. And the second six, five to ten, apply to our, our duties toward man. And Jesus is, is um, answering a question. So you have this scribe who's asked him, you know, which is the greatest commandment? And of course, the backstory is that the, the scribes and Pharisees had categorized the Old Testament law into 613 discrete laws, and they had enjoyed theological debate on what was given primacy. And so Jesus summarizes the law by saying, love God, love your neighbor. And he answers the question by saying, the first and great commandment is, is to love God. And he's, he's there, you know, addressing the first table of the law. And so I think you know, there, there's a, um, the vast in, um, emphasis in the church today and even in our perspective on society's needs falls under the second table. So there's a lot of interest in sexual perversity and adultery and abortion and a whole host of other things, all of which are very important and it's appropriate for us to speak from God's word to those things. But um, it seems to me that there, there's been an undue neglect of the first table. And really, our love for God and our duty to God is preeminent. And so we need to keep first things first. So I talk about the place of the first table. Uh, I talk about the, um, uh, the pursuits of the first table and the practice of the first table and so on. And I address it both with regards to the church, what are we putting first in our priorities, as well as our perspective on society as a whole. So idolat- <clears throat> the toleration of idolatry and public blasphemy and Sabbath desecration and so on are considered tangential things. The main things are other things. And I guess my, my point was, who in the world do we think we are to dispose of God's rights? And really, historically, the Reformed Church has contended first and foremost for the crown rights of Christ. And so God has prerogatives, and God has uh, things that we owe to him, and that should be put first. 
and uh, so I developed that under under that monitorial address and I've I've done disservice really in summarizing it but you get the gist yeah I understand what you're saying and really when we consider even the second table of of the law when we consider those commandments 5 through 10 a lot of their a lot of their teeth if you will come from how infringing upon them goes right back into first table issues you know when you break one commandment you break them all but the real weight and the real offense or not the real it's real offense all over the place but the great weight of the offense comes in the breaking of that first table of um desecrating the name of God Mm -hmm. and and setting ourselves up as authorities over him. And I think there's a, there's a relationship of the first table and second table. If we put first things first, we also get the second things. Mm -hmm. If we put second things first, we get neither the first things nor the second things. (laughs) And, you know, Romans one brings this out where, you know, Paul's saying you've, you've turned from the creator to the creature and there's also there's actually a causal relationship. He says, for this reason, I've given you up. And then he goes on to describe second table things. And then he repeats it. He gives you a list of first table things. And he says, wherefore, for this cause. And then he addresses the fact that he's removed the restraints of second table things. So if we're not, if we're not contending first and foremost for the Lord's rights, you know, we have all this talk about human rights and you know, the workers' rights and women's rights and so on and so forth. But if we're not contending first and foremost for God's rights, he will remove the restraints that pertain to our rights. That's good. And uh, that monitorial address is available online at the website of the Free Church of Scotland Continuing Synod. You can read it and you can listen to it. And so I commend that to you, listeners. Rob, can you give us a brief overview of what happened over the course of General Assembly this year? Well, the bread and butter of the Assembly... um, apart from worship, uh, includes uh, the reports of committees. So you have the Ecumenical Relations Committee, you have uh, Finance and Sustentation, Welfare and Youth, Psalmody, Public Question, Religion and Morals, Home and Foreign Missions, Training in the Ministry of Missions. So, I mean, sprinkled throughout the week, you have these committees reporting, and they bring deliverances, which then end up coming as motions that are debated and... um, you know, there's acts of assembly that are drawn from that. You also have sprinkled throughout the week uh, delegates from other Reformed churches. So it would include, you know, the RPCNA, like we were speaking about earlier, and the OPC and the Free Reformed Churches of North America, HRC, and others. Uh, but it would also include, you know, the the Evangelical Presbyterian Church of England and Wales and churches from the Netherlands and Australia and Canada and even Asia. So you have these delegates from really all over the world and they have their slots where they bring uh, a report from their respective synods or assemblies uh, as well. So, I mean, that's the, the bulk of what happens. We have other things. There's presentations the moderator makes to young people who have gotten you know, completed the shorter catechism and, or completed, you know, for the Psalmody Prize or those sorts of things uh, as well. But that gives you a, at least a cursory overview. And, you know, as I was looking over the the assembly review that's posted online, it's a succinct presentation of the business of this year's assembly. Um, when I was looking over that, a few things jumped out to me right away. One, of course, is the message to Her Majesty the Queen, reflecting your establishmentarian um, 
uh, views, and then also how the denomination coordinates Sabbath school, or what you know other denominations and, and churches out here maybe more commonly call Sunday school, but um, Sabbath school is the old Presbyterian term for it. You know, how does the denomination coordinate Sabbath schools across the denomination? Is it all centrally coordinated, or is there um, is there liberty given to each congregation to to figure out how best to do it? You know, that that part wasn't as clear to me in the review, and I was curious to hear you elaborate. Well, that's a good a question. Bit. We we do produce uh, our own materials. And so I would say for the most part, if not exclusively, those are the materials that are used. But certainly local sessions would have the ability to, to uh, implement other things. And Sabbath school isn't something that's a, a stated feature of all the congregations. So there's some that use it, some who don't. I mean, for ourselves, we have a catechism class uh, every Lord's Day. We don't have um, Sunday school or use that particular curriculum that's produced by the free church, but uh, we have a catechism class. So that we produce materials that are used, and by and large, I think that's what those who have Sabbath schools would would use. Um, yeah, the address to Her Majesty the Queen, uh, up until, well, throughout, the, throughout history, the Queen actually sent a representative to the assemblies, and um, he would sit to listen on what's, what's happening in the assembly and, uh, and so on. And the, the idea here is that the church has a responsibility to uh, instruct the magistrate with regards to their duties regarding God's word. You see this from the days of Knox, ad- addressing Queen Mary all the way down through the, uh, the, the history of, of the Scottish Presbyterian Church. So it does seem peculiar, but it's maintaining a voice uh, to the crown uh, year by year. Let's see, what else? Upcoming publications you asked about, is that what you said? I was going to ask about that. Before I do, um, you said for a while the queen, you know, it was customary to send a representative. Does she still do that at all, even to the, the, free, the free Church of Scotland or the continuing synod or what? She, she hasn't sent one since the division in 2000. I don't think we've had a representative from the crown uh, in the continuing. Whether or not she continues to subsequent to the division whether she continues to send one to the other side, I'm not actually sure. It's a good question. So you have a publications committee. You've had, um, you mentioned some of the, the names before of men who are involved in publications with the Banner of Truth or whatever. Uh, what upcoming publications is the Free Church putting out there? I know that uh, we, we re- reissued uh, our Psalter, the 1650 Scottish Psalter, which our, our congregations use. This was the Psalter produced uh, by the Westminster Assembly, the and I know that that run has sold out. So it's people have from around the world bought them up. So I know that that's uh, in the works to be republished again. And there are a, I think a number of little pieces. There's another piece that's come out by um, on Presbyterianism, so that we have a, a series of books on various topics dealing with. Uh, the Reformed faith, you know, things like the Five Points of Calvinism, Lord's Supper, worship, baptism, Presbyterianism, and so on. And that's been kind of the the focus of late. The only other thing I was going to ask about in particular was foreign missions. You have uh, works, and you said Spain, France, Northern Ireland, Sri Lanka, um, and and Zambia. What can you tell us about those works or or particularly significant progress made in any or or all of those areas in the next few minutes that we have? Yes, very good. 
The work in, in Sri Lanka is very encouraging. Uh, I've, I've actually been there twice uh, myself. So the, the minister that's there, Reverend Parthipan, is a native Tamil uh, Sri Lankan, and he came to Scotland and actually went through our seminary in Scotland, Free Church Seminary, and got his degree there and then went back uh, to plant uh, churches there. So um, for those who don't know, Sh- Sri Lanka is like a little teardrop shaped island, big, big island, but off of the the southeast coast of India. And the southern half is mostly Sinhalese people and Buddhist. The northern half is Tamil and more Hindu. So he's from the north and speaks Tamil. Uh, He's planted a church there in Vivonia, and it's really just taken off. I mean, really making great inroads into the Hindu community. they, they, they've actually, uh, they're coming to the end of a building project where they've, they've um, built a, a big building, a uh, new church building that will also serve for some seminary education that's happening for local <clears throat> evangelical ministers uh, in the north of Sri Lanka. And a lot of outreach into the community is very encouraging. And Reverend Parthipan is just solid as a rock. Um, in his his own life and testimony. They've also planted another church in Molotivo out on the the East Coast, and they have a building project as well, and there's developments that's taking place there. So it's actually a lot of really encouraging things. Every You know, both times that I've been there, I was astounded to see the work that's uh, gaining momentum there. In Spain, uh, we have a, a native Spaniard, uh, Reverend Ruiz, who was already an ordained minister, but was actually received into our denomination. And um, he was instrumental in issuing the Spanish metrical Psalter, and that has really taken off. So in Latin America, uh, especially South Central America, uh, Mexico, um, that's gaining some influence. You know, people that are using, really, it's the, the first time since the Reformation. So it was a Psalter, a metrical Psalter was started in the Reformation era, but never completed. And so now we have a full Spanish metrical Psalter that's uh, being used. But the work in Spain is very encouraging. There's, um, in addition to where he is, I think there's there's also work that's taking place in Barcelona and maybe one other place. And they've recently planted a work over the border in, in France, in Pau, which is old Huguenot territory. And we have a ruling elder there. Um, and so the work is, is kind of gaining momentum. Reverend Ruiz, Ruiz speaks fluent French as well as, as Spanish. So there's really some really amazing things that are happening. He's also had a lot of influence in a variety of places within Latin America. So ministers and others who are interested in kind of classical Reformed Orthodoxy and uh, the Reformed faith uh, have contacted him. And we had people from the assembly there from Colombia and um, other other places as well. We've had contacts in a variety of places. So I'm really encouraged with, with some of those inroads and, and growth that's taking place. That's, that's just very encouraging to hear. I had no idea about the metrical Psalter in Spanish. That's very cool. And, you know, as, as you know, Greenville Seminary has a very strong connection to a number of 
Latin American communities, particularly Brazil, which doesn't speak Spanish, but also in Peru and um, and elsewhere in South America. So I'll tell some of these brothers about that resource, that it's now freely available. I'm sure they'll be interested in it. Maybe, in fact, some of our listeners who are down there in South America and Central America will will want to pick that up as well. So, you know, you've, you've mentioned a number of very encouraging things from the assembly. This is a question I kind of uh, just put out there at the end. What was the single most encouraging takeaway from general assembly for you, other than becoming moderator and not having to run around the world delivering sermons and yeah. such? Well, personally, I think the most edifying thing is always the fellowship with the brethren, really. So that's not a function or work of the general assembly, but... Uh, the time that uh, we have, you know, I usually preach Sabbath before in a congregation sometimes, um, like this year, Sabbath afterward as well in a different congregation. But during the week, the opportunity to spend in really rich, spiritual, edifying conversation with, you know, other ministers and ruling elders is a, a huge boon to me. So I always come away very edified and charged uh, from that. But that's that may not be what you're asking. I think in terms of the assembly itself, I'm very encouraged by the work that's taking place in the foreign field. Uh, I'm always delighted with the, the young people who are receiving their certificates and awards for catechism and psalmody and things like that, which are very encouraging. Uh, we had for our own presbytery, uh, we, we had uh, a minister received... Um, who's now been called and uh, installed in the Atlanta congregation. So Reverend Brent Evans, that was a highlight to have him there and a, a boost uh, to us. Uh, another uh, encouragement. Uh, those would be a few of the things. And did you have any other final thoughts you wanted to share with our listeners, either about the Free Church generally or about um, about General Assembly this year? Nothing in particular. I mean, it's a delight to be with you and uh, really, really enjoy this opportunity to talk about things that we both love and uh, grateful for the prayers of the Lord's people uh, for these this, this portion of his vineyard mm-hmm. and uh, for the work that's being carried forward. Just as I close all the other denominational debriefs, I want to echo Reverend McCurley's um, uh, expression of appreciation for your prayers. And, you know, as you think of it, if you're like me and you pray for denominations, please pray for the Free Church of Scotland Continuing Synod and pray for the Free Church of Scotland uh, generally as well. Um, that the Lord would purify the worship and and bring strong ministers into the ranks who are willing to stand up for confessional uh, Presbyterianism and and, and biblical orthodoxy. Thank you so much, Rob. It was a pleasure having you in the studio. You've been listening to a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. For more information about the seminary, please visit www.gpts.edu.